Hey everyone, it's John. Uh, before the episode gets started, I just wanted to throw out a content warning. This episode has some uh, pretty frank discussions of uh, movies that depict uh, child abuse in some pretty rugged ways, especially the second movie that we talk about. So consider this a content warning. Thanks. Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple movies around a theme of our choosing. How are you tonight, Chris? I am good, John, and I apologize in advance for what I had to put you through for this month's episode. <laughs> That's all right. I've been drinking, so uh, I'm doing a-okay. Um, we've got our uh, we've got our lights appropriately set for the spooky mood of the season which is halloween um but before we talk about uh uh you know the the horrorness of this uh this episode there's a bit of uh podcast business to, to talk about up front uh first of all uh we've been going on this podcast for a year so surprise uh it's it's kind of been a year since we've started doing this. So is this our twelve? I think this is even in in keeping with the spookiness of the season. I believe this is our thirteenth episode, if I'm not mistaken. Am I or or I might be mistaken? <laughs> I'm not counting our uh, samurai episode, which was really the progenitor episode. Yeah, I think you and I are slightly off on our numberings, but uh, I actually do think that this ends up being number 13. Uh, and I'll add sound effects under each of our uh, responses when I later figure out in the editing who's right and who's wrong. So. Excellent. <laughs> Thing number two, uh, this podcast is now on Spotify. So uh, if you prefer to listen to your podcast on Spotify, we're our feed is now shows up there so if your only reason for not listening to us is because you get your podcast on spotify well now you have no more reason to not listen to us absolutely and uh lastly saving the best for last um as of the uh as of this episode coming out we have a proper website cinemaduel.com uh and yeah, we wanted to have a place where a proper website where we could uh, post our episodes. And not only that, but uh, we do these episodes once a month and we watch movies considerably more often than that. And so we wanted to have a home for uh, for us to put our thoughts on movies uh, in between our monthly recording sessions. So I, I believe at the time that we're recording this episode, Chris, you have a couple of reviews on the site and I've got uh, my first entry in a series that I'm writing on the Agnes Varda box set that I got earlier this year, um, which I hope to be a recurring thing. Um, if you like hearing our voices and our thoughts, then hopefully you'll head over to cinemaduel.com uh, where you can read those thoughts in written form. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Uh, and I'll say, first of all, uh, thanks to you. Uh, you put a lot of work into designing the website and getting it in the shape it's in. So thank you very much. Uh, the stuff that we'll have on there right now, yeah. So what I'm basically doing is I'm kind of taking a couple of my older stuff. Uh, I've been writing at this point online about film for holy cow almost 14 15 years so i'm taking a couple of choice reviews that i've liked and i'm throwing them on there but moving forward um john and i are, are going to try to dedicate ourselves 
as often as we are comfortable doing to whether uh, to put down our our additional thoughts, whether it's uh, just kind of more generic reviews or um, some features like the Varda piece that John's doing. I've got a couple of cool I ideas um, that I'm going to throw into the mix that I'm sure I can get John to ag agree to. So hopefully there'll be some interesting content on there uh, that you guys can check out in between the monthly episodes. And uh, Chris absolutely deserves to take considerably more credit for this site uh, design, as in many instances, uh, my ideas would be presented to Chris and then he could say, oh, those are good. And then he would like come up with like five more things to add on to that I couldn't have possibly thought of. So uh, uh, I think that one was a real team effort. Oh, sir, you, you flatter me. Thank you. Awkward transition into our uh, theme for the episode <laughs> is horror. And uh, yeah, we did horror. I, for some reason, thought we did horror last year, but it turns out that our first horror episode was actually at the beginning of the year, which we did with our friend Jeremy. Um, but this time we thought we'd try to be a bit more timely. Uh, and not only timely, there's some there's some real world uh Real world underpinnings uh, of our choices this uh, month. Chris, do you want to give us a little taste of what you've been up to this month? Yeah. So I've talked about this um, a lot. If you follow our the music website that John and I write for, Nine Circles, every um, October I participate in an event called Hooptober on letterboxd.com uh, set up by a uh, lovely gentleman named um, Cinemonster. Every year we do a movie marathon where we have to review, watch and review 31 movies in the month of October. But you can't just pick any movie. There are very specific rules and criteria that go along with it. Um, so I am neck deep in reading, watching, reviewing, writing horror films. And I said to John when we started to talk about episodes, I said, look, I don't have time to watch anything other than horror movies. So if you would please do me the honor of picking <laughs> a film or two films uh, from the list that I have to get done by uh, October 31st, it would help me immensely. So what we're doing today is kind of a bit of a cheat because typically on Cinema Duel, each of us, uh, once we agree upon the theme, we, we bring a film to the other, right? That is the dual portion of Cinema Duel. Uh, but this time, it's all me. And man, I apologize in advance for one of these films that we're going to talk about. But I needed to get it done because I had to hit all of the criteria for this year um, because I've done it every year for seven years and I wasn't going to miss out this time. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. We will return to your regularly scheduled programming next month with a theme and a film that each of us will bring to the table. But that being said, John, um, I, I kind of gave you the better film to talk about as kind of your film. So why don't you kick off with what we're going to be talking about first? All around her, people are dying, and only Rose knows why. You gotta come quick. You gotta come quick and get me. It's Rose. It's gotta be. Something's happened to Rose. Thanks, Chris. And uh, quick note, uh, we will talk a little bit more about the Hooptober stuff uh, towards the end, I believe, with the recommendations segment. Um, but our first movie for uh, the episode is 1977's Rabid, directed by Canadian hero David Cronenberg. This is... <laughs> it's interesting, because I think we've definitely talked about doing... Cronenberg as an episode at some point so definitely. even though this is not a movie that I uh, picked personally it's definitely falls into a it definitely falls into a wheelhouse that I'm uh, more than happy to uh, to talk about and we can certainly lay down some groundwork here that will 
probably come up when we actually get around to doing a proper Cronenberg episode. Um, Chris, had you like how familiar are you with like early Cronenberg? I'm pretty familiar with Cronenberg just in general. I've seen almost his entire filmography. There are one or two things that I haven't seen. Weirdly, Rabid was one of them. I had seen bits and pieces of the film here and there. I've seen Shivers, which had come before, but this was one that I had missed. But other than that, I'm a huge fan of Cronenberg's work. One of the biggest things I ever did as kind of a film blogger was participate with a bunch of esteemed blockers of, of the time in a Cronenberg uh, blogathon. That was a term we used back in the day, I think around 2010, 2011, uh, to talk about Crash, which I believe is getting the Criterion treatment soon. So maybe we'll have to talk about that at some point. But it's safe to say I'm a huge fan. Um, the earlier work, and we'll talk about this certainly with, with Rabid, um, it certainly is a lot less refined, probably, than what he would achieve later on in his career. But um, you can definitely see the germination of ideas and, 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 and themes, certainly in Rabid, for things that he would take to a much more advanced level in his later work. It's interesting to hear that because I definitely agree. And I and I ask you that question not coming from a place of authority. Like I'm like this has been the year that I've actually really sort of gotten my biggest deep dives into Cronenberg's work. But before that, I had seen, you know video drone and uh, scanners and stuff but like this was the year that i sort of tried to watch sort of everything else hmm. and my big takeaway from rabbit and we'll get to talking about the plot and stuff but where your thoughts are how rabbit sort of feels like a the beginning of something that he'll develop fully later i see rabbit as more of a like culmination of like taking everything that had come before like shivers and uh his his shorter films and sort of like trying to push it beyond what they were. And I think both things are true, but watching Rabbit really f I got a real shivers vibe <laughs> off of it. Like it like like aside from some of the particular details, um and obviously I think there's growth in the in just how he shoots it in in, in the dialogue and the setting and the pacing and stuff. Like the, I I would say that Rabbit is definitely an improvement on Shivers. Absolutely. But yeah. I could probably summarize the plot in a simple enough way that you would have a hard time knowing if I was talking about either movie. And I think I actually like I, I do prefer Rabbit to Shivers, but that was sort of my like going in and watching this for the first time, that was sort of my big takeaway. It was like, oh right, I watched this already. It was Shivers. <laughs> Yeah, no, that I'm 100% with you. It, 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 in a way, it feels a little bit like a refinement of Shivers, where you, you take the same basic concept, right? Something happens that evokes in people this kind of mania or, you know, taste for blood or, or whatever you want to have. And uh, what Rabbit does is it, 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 it takes that generic concept but puts it in a slightly different framework. It, it it puts it very much in a perspective of, I think, unlike like Shivers, which is why to totally agree it's a culmination. But I, I think he does this. I think he broadens his reach when he gets into his later films. Th this takes that basic concept and it really then draws upon themes of sexualization of women and just kind of like gender roles and, and how that, that, that works. It, it takes it much broader into um, what Shiver does as well, society as a whole. And, and, and as you start to see the breakdown of the city and then the breakdown of the country, when we talk about the ending of the film, 
kind of takes these tropes of what it means when you kind of fall prey to this thing and then now your your base instincts are what are driving you um forward it's shivers with with a little bit more thought and a little bit more reach i i think from from cronenberg and there are some things about it that i just as rough as it is there are just some things about it that i really really like i really like some of the imagery that he he starts to use and that kind of gets recalled in later films um so i'll i'll jump into the summary real quick if it makes sense because i've got my review for hooptober up right here uh, and i'll use my best radio voice to talk about the quick summary for rabid so just outside of the famous keloid plastic surgery center a young woman named rose is involved in a horrific motorcycle accident with her boyfriend critically injured with no time to get to a general hospital she is operated on at the clinic using a new experimental process involving wait for it morphogenetically neutral skin grafts on her tissue and organs a month later, she awakens, but something went wrong because now, in what is surely a thinly veiled metaphor, she has a vampiric organ that shoots out of her armpit and drains the blood from the men and women she preys upon, only to have them rise and attack others. It's a world gone mad, and as the city gets more and more rabid, it would normally be up to the boyfriend to save Rose from herself, but this is Cronenberg, so the ending is going to be something you won't see coming ellipses because that's how you write a review on letterbox and make it stick um and that really kind of sums up what i really liked about the movie is um at least for me and let me ask you about this as well the main takeaway i have from rabid as as well as kind of the sharpening of the teeth for later things like the surgery scene um for example um makes me think of uh, dead ringers later on and and the way that they use the, the the surgical tools there but the thing that really drove me to really love this movie is one marilyn chambers who plays uh, Rose, the lead, is, I think she is phenomenal. We're, you know, this is someone who was a very well-known and acclaimed porn actress uh, in one of the biggest porn films of all time up until that, that point. She also had a kind of huge career as, I think she was the Downey person. She was on the boxes of Downey back in the day. So people would, you know, leverage her for that. Um, and to Cronenberg's credit, Cronenberg saw something much different in her. He originally wanted Sissy Spacek for the role, took Marilyn Chambers, and I think she is fantastic in the way that she uses her sexuality. She uses her her, her vulnerability to really do a kick-ass, a real kick-ass performance here. And to the point where her her boyfriend, um, whose name I don't even remember at this point, is completely besides the point here. He is completely ineffectual. And I, I, I think there's a real strong kind of um, viewpoint with Cronenberg looking at the boyfriend and most of the males in this movie being utterly useless. It's not that Rose is completely empowered as we see what happens to her at the end of the movie. But this is this is Cronenberg sticking to a very explicit point of view that wasn't popular at the time in the late 70s um, and 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 coming up with something that was certainly different than what other people were doing in horror at that time. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, Marilyn Chambers as the lead here is sort of the I think it's, it's probably the highlight for me the way that the plot is set up and the uh, and how it pays out some of the things that 
I like about like I like that the like it definitely is dealing in the area of uh you know sexualization of women and the sort of the tensions there but one of the things I like about this over shivers is that my takeaway from shivers was the the parasite or when you get infected you become super aggro and rapey and that's mm-hmm. just like that's like it's a very like you get infected and then you start raping in this movie it it happens sometimes but just as often as she is sort of having people come uh, be aggressive towards her sometimes she is it's the opposite where it's flipped and so there's not a consistent like there's not a consistent thing it's just when someone gets bitten whether it's she's uh approaching them or uh well i guess they don't get bit they get uh armpit penis or whatever but uh the the boyfriend's angle throughout most of the movie aside from being useless is just trying to figure out like am i responsible for this like did i get him into it and i mean sure he was driving the motorcycle that caused the accident but like they he wasn't being irresponsible in driving the motorcycle and they were wearing helmets it's like he's not really at fault and the medical uh people at the plastic surgery clinic you know I, i wasn't quite clear it Uh, on the exact nature of the procedure they did to her but it doesn't read as like we're going to do terrible things to her to turn to give her this extra orifice it's just if we don't get her to if we don't operate on her immediately she'll die and she you know the nearest actual hospital is too far away so that there's you don't sense any malice in their work either it's interesting i i actually looked that up so morphogenetically neutral skin grafts that's something that's actually real so what they were um when i looked it up it, it, it it's basically making the skin neutral so that when you lay it over the tissue that you're replacing um it can more closely mimic what it's trying to replace um i i, I think we're the interesting kind of science use of it here is i from what i understood they not only did it to her outside tissue they did it to her organs as well and that's what creates as you so aptly put it the penis in the armpit and there is something wonderful about Cronenberg. just i mean he, he is known as kind of like the master of body horror and this thing is very sexually it is explicit in in the fact that it is trying to sexualize this weird thing that has that is growing out of her but he is i i mean even here this is like the the first point where you start to see him really get into that disturbing mode that you'll see later on in the brood in scanners in videodrome um in in the fly which is basically a whole movie about a person you know going through that type of body horror on a much more holistic level but even when you're not looking at those pieces, which maybe are much more signature Cronenberg, like like the whole thing that comes out of the armpit and, and the surgery scene, there are just these delightfully weird scenes. Like the first time that we see the Keloid Institute, which is the plastic surgery center, um, it just cuts to it and you just see people walking around with all these weird bandages on and you don't know what's happening and you don't know why they have these bandages on, but it just, it's, it's broad daylight and it just paints this really offsetting eerie, um, feel for the film and, and and i think like when i see that that to me is more cronenberg than the the weird penis thing shooting out of the armpit you know that's vampiric um it's 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 how he's able to just make 
something so seemingly innocent as people walking around the hospital grounds feel so otherworldly and just sort of disconcerting. Um, and this movie has a bunch of those moments. And 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 and, and that's why I, th- I think to go back to our earlier point, I, I, I kind of look at this as maybe more to what you said. It's the cul- it's the culmination of what came before, but it's the first real for me anyway, actualization of what a Cronenberg film is. Shivers has a lot of interesting ideas and there's certainly more of a, like a classic thing, classist thing going on with the whole, with the whole apartment building and, and what's happening w- within it. But this feels to me like the first kind of real, this is Cronenberg doing what Cronenberg is going to do again and again and again, you know, in various ways and avenues in all of his later films. And by setting up the, the 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 male like the the doctors at the clinic and the boyfriend as being useless if not malicious, then like this ends up being this almost feels more like a a gross epidemic movie, like this like more of a process movie, like a like a Contagion, for example. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, which is you know especially wonderful again to watch in the year of our Lord twenty twenty. Um, but uh. Yeah, what what did you think about the the sort of like because they they do follow a handful of her victims um, mm-hmm. and they're sort of they they do track like the 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 farmer who tries to assault her the um, I'm, sure I'm forgetting the rest of them but like they do sort of track the spread of this epidemic as she's sort of having her own completely oblivious adventure somewhere else. To just kind of speak very briefly to um, Hooptober again, the reason I had picked this film is it satisfied, like it satisfied four criteria for me. So it was like, hey, I can knock off uh, four categories with just this this one film. Um, uh, for the list, you have to do six different countries. So Canada is marked off right there. Six decades. So I got the 70s with this film. Uh, four body horror films. So this counts as one of my four body horror films. And then three disease-based films. So I put this in here too. And it, it is really interesting to kind of – he doesn't go into too much detail with it, but it's all about the – what he does do with it when you follow the farmer. Um, and that's a really kind of morbidly funny sequence. I don't think we give enough credit to how funny David Cronenberg can be. Right. So she, she's um, Marilyn Chambers Rose is desperately trying to not kill people, even though she has these kind of fugue states where she doesn't quite remember what she does. So she tries to um, use her armpit vampire to get blood from a cow and she immediately vomits and a farmer comes in and sees her. Um, and of course, to make sure that there's no ill will over the fact that Rose is about to get even with this farmer, the farmer becomes very kind of perverted and gets a little bit rapey. Um, so she hits him and then you see him later take a bite out of a waitress at a diner. And it's these little moments uh, that happens. There's a scene in a mall, which, again, is just morbidly hilarious with the way. Oh, my God. With the Santa? With the Santa Claus. So all of that uh, world building leads to what what I think makes the very end of the film uh, work the way it does. The ending of Rabbit, if you've never seen the film, you may have seen images or, or, or clips of, of the ending. It pops up in a lot of things about great horror movies. So, so John, I, I have to ask you, as, as we, we can't end without talking about the very end of Rabbit. What did you think about that ending and how it kind of ties into what else the film is trying to say? I think it's just incredibly well made. And uh, I would talk about it more in those terms than necessarily Cronen 
Bergian terms, I guess. But the spoiler alert. Because Marilyn Chambers has gone through the whole movie, at first being completely unaware that she is the cause of the spreading epidemic and then later struggling to come to terms with it. Um, the film ends with her essentially trying an experiment to prove her innocence that ends up with her dead. And then the the last uh, scene of the movie is a a garbage truck uh, with a an armed garbage truck. They find her body convulsing uh, in the back alley and they throw her body into the garbage truck, which then gets compacted and they drive away. So it's real rugged and it just feels like incredibly like, yes, if the if the movie is following two sort of stories. One is hers and one is the the city at large's pandemic. This sort of like, no, he actually pulls it all back together and so sort of put a, puts a incredibly fine point on it. I love yeah. the ending of the movie. Yeah, the I mean th- there is uh, there are few images as striking as two garbage men in yellow hazmat suits grabbing this woman from a dumpster. She 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 when we find her, I don't remember she's not in the dumpster, she's next to a dumpster kind of laying there yeah. uh tossing her into a garbage truck and compacting her as they drive away. Um and if anything, uh, me being in the United States right now, if anything is analogous to potentially, and you, one can argue this, the way our current uh, administration is dealing with a pandemic <laughs> that we are all experiencing right now, um, this ending really, really struck home for me, uh, kind of watching that and thinking about uh, where we are right now in uh October 2020, the year of COVID-19. It's, it's, uh, it's such a great ending. It, but even if you don't think of it that way, just there are questions that it raises about the disposability of women. Just this, you know, this was a woman who, uh, throughout the movie, you could say, uh, kind of took back in a weird way her sexuality and uses her sexuality there's all these other pieces that you can bring into it about you know marilyn chambers real life and her life as a porn actress before this um all of that whether intentional or not plays into that ending and makes that ending just so striking and so visceral and such a gut punch that even though the rest of the movie again is kind of it's early Cronenberg um if we were to have done a Cronenberg episode I think it's safe to say John neither one of us probably would have picked Rabid (laughs) right it's a good movie it's not classic Cronenberg um but man that ending certainly is classic Cronenberg and 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 for that I salute it for sure and like and yeah and in this movie in this particular context I think yeah the disposability of her as a woman, certainly we can read that. I think if we want to talk about it as it relates to um, how that thread sort of relates to, you know, current times, the at one point, a government official in the movie says that the only way to deal with these sick people is to shoot them. Like, that is like that is the best uh that is the best way to deal with it which is like it's it's sort of said in sort of a like short newsreel highlight kind of thing but uh is sort of the it sort of sets the clue that uh for the for the ending later when she just gets you know she just gets pegged off society has to continue and we can't put any energy into you know or we can't we can't um you know we basically consider you a goner so we'll shoot you and be done with it yeah. 
It's best so. just to sweep it under the rug or throw it in the garbage truck and get on with the uh, get on with capitalism. <laughs> I literally get I literally get two or three emails a week uh, from my kids' school saying uh, someone's tested positive for COVID. We legally have to tell you, but because it's not someone that we think your kid has come into contact with, we cannot tell you anything more. <laughs> Which is just like people are getting COVID, but it's theoretically fine so i guess i still have to legally send my kid to school (laughs) movies they're great movies So let's get ready to talk about 1976's The Witch Who Came From the Sea. So first thing to kind of talk about with this film. So why did I I pick it? So every year there are, you have to do 31 films. Uh, There are always two bonus films. And one of those was, hey, for bonus content, check out The Witch Who Came From the Sea. And incidentally, um, not really knowing anything about the film, if you are a fan of Criterion and... You probably know by now if you listen to any of these episodes that John and I are huge fans of the Criterion Collection. Uh, the Criterion Channel, yeah, <laughs> the Criterion Channel just put out for October a one of their collections, and the collections with '70s horror, of which both this and Rabid were a part of the collection. So, not to say it doesn't have its problems, but typically, if they if it's in the collection, um, I'm going to check it out just to see what it is that the hubbub is about. So, when I saw that they had included the Witch Who Came from the Sea, and it was one of the bonus picks for my thing had to do it it has another distinction as well not only is it on the criterion list for 70s horror cinema it was also one of the infamous video nasties of the 1980s so if you were around back then or you know about it back in the 1980s in the uk um, there was a huge hullabaloo over horror films and the impact that they would have on the youth so there was a list of films that were essentially banned from the uk and they were labeled video nasties Um, The Witch Who Came From the Sea is one of those films. It wasn't like in the top tier of video nasties. It was one of the kind of the lesser ones. Um, But now having seen the film, (laughs) I can understand why it may have been listed in that label. And uh, I don't know that I'm a better person for having seen it, John, but I have seen it (laughs) and you have seen it. So I think it only fair that we talk about it for a little bit. I mean, if we if we don't talk about it, then I will have watched it twice for literally <laughs> no reason. <laughs> yeah. So let's at least talk about it. it. There are some interesting things that I do want to talk about with the movie. So what is this th- this movie? So um, uh, directed by Matt Simber. Uh, and written by Richard Tom for his wife, Millie Perkins. Um, and if you don't know those names, uh, you might know Millie Perkins. Millie Perkins was a um, famous actress who came to prominence. Her first role was playing Anne Frank in The Diary of Anne Frank, a very, very acclaimed film. Beautiful woman, beautiful actress. Um, she married Richard Tom. And in the 70s, uh, he took kind of elements from his life and her life, um, nothing, you know, like too harrowing, but uh, created this film, The Witch Who Came From The Scene, which which is about basically this woman, Molly, who, um, to put it as delicately as possible, we'll talk more detail later, uh, had a very abusive childhood. 
uh, and has grown up into a young woman in her 30s with some very, very big issues, uh, particularly around her father. Uh, she has these two little nephews, Tad and Tripoli, that look up to her and she wants to, um, you know, give them um, something to look up to. So she tells these wonderful stories about her father, who was a sea captain who got lost at sea. But as the movie comes on, we start to realize that uh, maybe her relationship with her daddy is not as wholesome as she makes it out to be. And these problems manifest themselves in uh, horrible acts of castration and murder when she gets to get too close to a, another man. I mean, I think that's the gist of what's happening here. Um, and uh, man, it's a tough movie to watch, John. <laughs> so I apologize yeah. in advance, but I, I, I think the first question that I have for you, um, and maybe we can take it from there, is I know this was rough to watch. I know there's some horrible things that go on in here, but is there anything about the movie that kind of strikes you as like, hey, you know what? There has to be a reason why Criterion put this in the list. So what stands out to you as something that's kind of worth mentioning or worth taking note of in The Witch Who Came From the Sea? I mean, I think Millie Perkins's performance uh, as the lead Molly, like I, I think she is sort of like the if there is something that you could call a bright shining star of this movie, it, it would be her. Yeah. She is phenomenal in this movie. I think that like the distance that the, the haunting, the, the way that she just is completely haunted throughout this whole movie. Um, she's very disturbing. Like it, it is effective. And I sure hope that the details of their lives that were put into this movie uh, are some of the more mundane details. Yes, they are. So yes, so yeah. I, I was reading through this at length afterwards and that abusive stuff from what I understand, that's the made up stuff. There was other little pieces here and there that were taken, but yeah, none of that. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, it, it's a ferocious vulnerable haunted performance she is unbelievable in this movie and she the movie is not worthy of the performance that she gives in a weird way yeah that is uh i would agree 100 percent with that and then the and like even the the way that she has sort of this like weirdly possessive loyal relationship with her nephews i find that oddly compelling and especially frightening in the end like i like mm. that part and i mean hell we're gonna talk i think the thing that this conversation is largely going to be about is about child abuse um but the way it's actually presented in the movie sort of gets dripped you know it's sort of more subtly presented well it's slowly presented i <laughs> wouldn't call it subtle it's not subtle <laughs> <laughs> it's not subtle, uh, which is actually the problem. Uh, but uh, but the but like the main time you're spending on this is either her arguing with her with her sister, the the mother of the two nephews, um, or being at work, or these sort of fantasy sequences. The way that they add like they they slow down the dialogue, they pitch it down to make it sound more you know psychedelic. And in some cases, she is actually you know taking drugs and the, those whole. Like the threesome sequence that that stuff feels like unsettled like i i i felt weird um and, and not in a not in a i don't want to watch this kind of way it was just i thought the way that they handled those scenes even when she's like the guys are like super high and then she starts she gets out the razor blade and i was just like this was like 
it's disturbing and unsettling, but I was actually on board with with that stuff. I was like, though I think those two threads are sort of like the the stuff of the movie. I think actually works. Yeah, well, it's interesting um, thing you say about the direction and like the way some of that that stuff works. So. Um, a little bit of background on director Matt Simber. Um, he, he primarily before this was doing exploitation films. So, I mean, he's used to that kind of rugged, down and dirty look of the movies. Um, this has some of that, but he's also the co-creator of Glow, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, which I find really interesting, but somehow reconciles in my brain with how he grounds the movie in Millie Perkins's performance as Molly. Um, I, I I think there is as horrible as this movie is to watch. The movie is horrible to watch because of the content and because of what happens. I I, I think the film takes some really daring risks with how it films things and how it does things and how it again it, it centers everything on Millie Perkins and uh, her performance as Molly and what Molly's going through, whether it's the the weird surreal fantasy sequences in the beginning with all the bodybuilders on the beach or that crazy threesome scene with the football players or even the end um to your point it's it's got a hell of an ending with her and the two kids and and what she how she um ends herself and ends the film um there's some weird little moments in there but the the thing that if you're going to drive this to horror and you're going to drive this to, hey, you like horror stuff, you want to know why this movie is scary. I mean, I I think we have to not only talk about what is driving her performance, uh, which is the child abuse, but the the thing that struck me is I've seen a lot of movies where there's abuse and there's sexual abuse, which is definitely the case here with her father. But man, the way that Simber films those sequences it is horrific on a level of like David Lynch because it takes a completely different feel than the rest of the movie. When you have these flashbacks, it's not simply just there's wavy lines and everything's, you know, slightly shrouded in fog. Um, he plays with sound in a devastating way. Um, he plays with with just the the framing in a very simple way uh, the way that he kind of lingers on certain body parts is just horrific but at the same time i can't help but be like man i mean th- this guy th- this isn't like we're just going to get down and dirty and just make it look gross this guy took some thought to kind of think about how can i make this as kind of gut-wrenching and disturbing as possible and it is super effective in what it is trying to do I don't like it, but I have to give it credit for being as effective as it is in conveying the the madness that is kind of roiling in her in her uh, in herself, so to speak. That I think only sort of serves to highlight the ways in which the movie actually completely falls apart. Um, before we get to the sort of like like actually unforgivable sin of what this movie does there's like so there's like if you think about it on a spectrum there's the stuff that's really compelling and hard to watch but it's like it works like it functions it does the thing that you want it to do um which is the stuff we've talked about beforehand Mm -hmm. and then we'll go where it goes too much to the point of breaking um to wrap up this stuff but then there's also stuff that is so silly that completely clashes um with even the more like 
grotesque kind of stuff. So at the beginning of the movie, after uh, after her first fantasy sequence, she takes the the nephews, uh, Tad and Tripoli, which is only a thing I remember because she says it so often it's burned in my brain. <laughs> she does. Um, she takes Tad and Tripoli, and she they're walking down the street and they walk by a tattoo shop and she's giving them one of her many lectures about tattoos but she's looking at the at the window and she becomes entranced by this image uh of a mermaid i think it's i think it's supposed to be venus maybe um but it's a mermaid a picture of a mermaid tattoo design and then she's just sort of like looks at it and then all of a sudden out of nowhere the, the tattoo shop owner sort of like jumps uh out from behind cover and just sort of gives the, and he has got a tat, you know, he's got a tattoo on his face and he just sort of like growls at them and just sort of gives them the meanest looking face. And they just look and the, and the Molly and the nephews look so petrified and they run away. And it is the most cartoonish, dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. I was like, Oh, come on. I cannot believe you put that in your movie. Yeah, it was a weird sequence. <laughs> I'll give it that. And tonally, it's so different than the rest of the film that it 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 feels it definitely feels out of place. <laughs> yeah, and like the the uh, when she's at work, and I think it's her coworkers talking about how she knows that like all football players are gay or something because they're trying they're gossiping about the 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 football threesome um which like i guess we haven't mentioned it all of the fantasies that molly has about castrating and killing bodybuilders or football players or actors those are all things that she actually does but she but the way the film presents them as her sort of having a daydream about it and then later realizing that it's not a daydream that she's actually doing it um but like yeah there's a there's a handful of moments in the movie where i'm just like i i was really into this and now you're just pulling out some really really weird shit that like doesn't match at all with you know the 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 what i would otherwise assume to be like ambition for telling this kind of story let's talk about that for a second so is it specifically those sequences that pull you out like the sequence with the so the sequence with the football player is really is really weird i like the sequence on its own but the thing that i had a hard time with was like the timing doesn't feel right because she's about to go to work, but then she has the fantasy, but then she's at work. So I had a hard time with like just time placement of was she late for work because she went and killed the two football players and forgot about it? Or does that happen after work and she picks them up there? Are, yeah, are, are those things that draw you out of it? I'm okay with the sort of like the fuzziness of when this is supposed to happen like because the the whole movie is fuzzy like it it only works on that sort of like dreamlike logic um Mm -hmm. there's just a handful of moments throughout the film in the like sort of more mundane real life aspects of it where i'm just like the scary tattoo man was uh i just laughed i was like i don't think i'm supposed to be laughing in this movie well, that's the only time that I really laughed with just like, oh, this is kind of silly, like, and, and was meant to kind of like, is this meant to be like, they're in the dirty part of town and ooh, the bad man run away. But the other sequences is, especially with the murders, I mean, I didn't have that same disconnect, I think, because the way that I, they played in my head, at least were, right, so obviously, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the explicit pieces with the father, but all of these men in some way or another represent her big, strong dad. Um, 
and who has a very big shaggy beard. And and so I, I start to kind of understand the whole thing with the razors and particularly at the end with the actor who seems like an all around kind of decent guy. Although there is a sequence there of weird humor that kind of took me out of the movie for a second where his ex-girlfriend shoots his tires and there's two Chinese guys like kind of watching the whole thing. And there's this weird kind of commentary that they have that feels like it's a completely different movie. Um, yeah. But when she she kills him like you get us the same thing like he's shaving and there's this whole thing with the beard and she's starting to get this like th- those feelings of what her father did to her start to well back up and then she takes it and obviously c- kills him those didn't take me out of of kind of the tone or feel of the movie as much as those more weirdly overt humorous moments that just felt like a different movie entirely well and and so, like the other, I guess a thread that uh, we haven't talked about yet is her obsession or her sort of fixation on on TV. And specifically, there's this uh, this the the actor, one of the actors that she hooks up with, um, is in the shaving commercials that she sees all the time. Right. And and part of her sort of fantasy or delusion or whatever is that every time she sees the commercial. Um, it stops for a second so that he actually turns to the camera and starts talking to her specifically. I really like that moment. Yeah. That's certainly something we see in, in movie. It's not uncommon to see that we're doing this normal commercial. And then all of a sudden we're going to sort of just slip, turn slightly and start talking about, you know, do you want to go sailing with me? Yeah. Which I mean, by that point, you know, Oh, okay. We're, she slipped off into sort of her own little world. Is there anything you want to say before we get to like the thing? No, let's talk about the thing because we, we got to talk about it. Quickly speak. Like, I mean, yeah, like we've already hinted at it. And the movie, I think, similarly, like kind of not subtly hints at it, too, is that her father is sexually abusive towards her as a kid. From what I remember, there's three notable shots. One is a sequence where she, as a kid, goes to hang up her coat in the closet and she opens the clo- the door to the closet. She drops her coat. And then when she goes down to pick up the coat at the bottom of the closet, she sees her father naked, crouched down and sort of with a smile on his face. And they they add the reverby weird vocal effects when she says Papa. Yeah, and that is terrifying. That is the most terrifying moment of the film for me. And and, and like and that and that is just a scene where she just sees her father naked, crouched in a closet. I was like, that's that's how they choose to depict that is just a naked man in a closet. That stuck out as weird to me. So so I think so to interject for a second because because that, that's what I was talking about before with the scenes. I, I I don't think we have to pussyfoot around it. It's very obvious he was sexually abusing her. Yeah. And in fact, like the culmination of this is he actually has a heart attack and dies while having sex with her as a child. And that screws her up be- not only because of all the abuse, but coupled on top of that, she feels like she killed her father for, for some reason. But um, so there is a scene before that where Again, this is all kind of disgusting, but it, it, it's the way that Simber kind of films these things in such a weird matter of factual piece. At first, the, the first scene is actually her sitting on his lap and there's a weird rocking motion there that like you're like, oh, crap, something weird is happening. Um, and then we get to that second scene where she goes to put her thing in the, the closet and he's there. And the way that I, 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 I took that scene is not to kind of subtly forecast what is happening because we've already seen the scene before that where he's obviously you know rubbing against her inappropriately he's just screwed up like there's something fundamentally 
unwired about this guy that he's just hiding in a closet naked with this weird feral grin on his face. Um, and then, of course, it gets to there are two more scenes. Uh, and like I said, the, the as horrible as they are, it's the way that Simber kind of inter juxtaposes like this crazy clown on a TV set next to feet rocking back and forth. Uh, it's just horrific. The 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 shot of the of the two sets of feet uh, like shook me to my core straight up. Yeah. And then was immediately followed up with the final scene. Uh, we were having a conversation about the movie Little Monsters before about how anytime Josh Gad would, you know, scream profanities, it would be shot uh, in a way yeah. to suggest that the kids aren't actually there. So you're protecting the kids. I think it seems to be shot that way, too. But you actually see the dad on top and the and another a different angle of the girl and they're, they're just they're just showing it and yeah i'm just like oh so you actually are just like straight up showing this to me i hate everything about this um and that's and why that's, it's a video nasty <laughs> that's why i think it got banned <laughs> for everything we can talk about like millie perkins being good and some of the cinematography and audio choices like being great that's that's what it boils down to is they depict child abuse in a way that is horrifying and i never want to see in my life again I will agree. <laughs> um, and I made the mistake of, I wrote about this in the review. I don't know if you noticed this or you read about it afterwards, but um, apparently the young girl who plays Molly as a child was the daughter of one of the other actors in the film. So th they knew that they needed someone for this role. Um, and this one guy who was playing one of the cops was like, hey, well, my daughter could probably do that role. And I read about that before I watched the film. And then when I watched the film, when it gets to the part of the two cops who are interviewing the mother of um, Tad and Tripoli, I looked at the face and all of a sudden my brain was just like, holy crap, that's the girl's father. The resemblance is striking between the two. And then when I have to go back and watch the other scenes of her with the father, it just made it even worse for me that I could see the resemblance to the cop. And uh, it's... Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's not something I want to watch again either. Um, but I have to be fair to the movie that it, it doesn't feel like it's just pure exploitation. And that's what's really weird about this movie is that there was thought put into how horribly they were going to film it. It wasn't simply like, just get on there and we'll just do this and it's going to be shocking. Like, there's some weird art to how this thing was filmed. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take away from how kind of cheap and slovenly it looks otherwise. But I mean, it is this was not a movie just made to make a couple of bucks. And you see that in all of how it is performed. Um but fair warning, and we'll put the trigger warning at the front of the episode, man. This has got some – this is probably some of the worst stuff I have ever seen watching Hooptober. I think I'll sum up uh, my thoughts on the movie as follows. I would rather watch Martyrs again. Martyrs is a much better film. <laughs> yeah. And I would rather watch Martyrs again too. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> so let's all go watch Martyrs. Let's all go watch Martyrs. <laughs> Well, let's pivot out of that unpleasantness to talk about some movies that we actually like. Every episode we do film recommendations. So, Chris, why don't you get us started? 
Yeah, and uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to keep talking horror because literally that's all I've been watching since the beginning of October or else I wasn't going to make this uh, marathon work. So I do want to talk about some of the things that I really, really enjoyed, um, and none of them will be as disturbing as the films we just talked about. Um, so I'm going to talk about probably three films. The first two come as a pair, though, and uh, that is I can't believe I'm going to talk about these, but Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, uh, which are uh, a pair of time traveling Groundhog Day slasher horror movies, uh, which turn out to be rated PG-13 um, from the Bloomhouse Company, um, directed by Christopher Landon. Um, and these are notable um, for a couple of reasons, one being... Uh, if I want to talk about anything about these movies at all, it is the unbelievable performance of Miss Jessica uh, Roth as um, Tree Gelbfarb, uh, the heroine of the film. So you might think about Happy Death Day as like, oh, this is the movie that's kind of ripping off Groundhog's Day. It's about a young... Um, super popular sorority girl who wakes up one morning kind of after a crazy, hazy, drunk-filled night. And uh, she goes about her day and is murdered uh, at the end of the night by a weird killer in a baby mask because this uh, college university, uh, Bayside University, its mascot is the Bayside Baby. Uh, so she gets murdered and uh, immediately wakes up and it's the same morning, which, yeah, is pretty much a Groundhog Day ripoff. But this movie is aware that it's a Groundhog Day ripoff and it actually acknowledges the movie Groundhog Day in it. Um but what this movie really does great is it prevents it, it presents us with a heroine that is of all of the horror heroes and protagonists, your your Ash Williams from Evil Dead, um, people like, like that. I, I truly and firmly believe that Tree is of that ilk. She is phenomenal. This movie is hilarious. Um, it's not particularly disturbing. It, like I said, it's a PG-13 film. Um, and it knows what it is, and it explores that conundrum in wonderful detail. Uh, I can't recommend the film enough. Uh, and if Happy Death Day is Groundhog's Day, what's really interesting is to watch immediately after, like I did, the sequel, Happy Death Day to You, which they change pace entirely. And instead of becoming kind of like a scream tongue-in-cheek slasher, it becomes a time-traveling action-adventure movie, kind of like Back to the Future. It's much more science fiction. It literally takes place the moment after the first movie ends, goes in some really interesting directions before kind of, unfortunately, ultimately squandering it and getting back to, oh, it's her again, reliving the same day again. What's she going to do? But it plays on the fact that for spoiler reasons I won't get into, things are not happening exactly the same way as they did the last time, so she can't just find the killer from the first film and, and end it quickly. Uh, it Man, it is a delight. It made me smile. It made me laugh. Uh, it was probably my happiest experience reviewing films for the Hooptober Marathon. So if you're in the mood for something just kind of slick and shiny but really fun, definitely check those those two movies out. Last one that I'm going to talk about, is uh, something a little bit different. Um, I had the opportunity to see uh, the Russian film Sputnik, 
which is kind of a play on Alien, but takes the premise of what if uh, instead of being stuck there in space, uh, the alien came and uh, jumped into somebody and came back to Earth and what happens there. But what happens if it's 1980s Russia? Um, and it's a really interesting film. It's mainly about two astronauts. Uh, they're they're kind of up in a satellite. They are attacked by something. They crash on Earth. The Russian government takes them. Uh, one of the astronauts is dead. The other is alive, but he may have something inside of him. So one of the preeminent scientists, this woman is brought in to investigate and sees what happens. It sounds like a fairly standard setup, but as the movie goes on, you find out that not everything is as it appears to be. Um, I've made no bones about the fact that my favorite horror is stuff where it is mostly otherworldly. So whether it's supernatural stuff or whether it's alien stuff, that's the stuff that I am really into. Uh, they do an incredible job on the alien here. It is not like the alien from Alien at all. Um, they get into a lot of detail as to how it lives and how it survives and how it works and operates. Uh, there are weird parallels parallels to E.T. that make the movie really effective. Uh, it's a brand new movie that came out th this year. It's available on VOD to, to rent if you want to see it. Um, can't recommend it enough for just a really cool, atmospheric, moody sci-fi horror film if you like that type of stuff. So that's what I got this month, John. What about you? That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to have to track down that one. Um, actually, well, well, actually, probably happy death day to you, especially when you mentioned Back to the Future. Are there any DeLoreans in it? No, there are no DeLoreans in it, but I, I, I'll, I'll say this as, as well. My wife hates horror movies. Uh, she will not watch them. And after I watched Happy Death Day, uh, I immediately grabbed her and said, look, I know you don't like horror. You have to sit down and watch this with me. I think you'll enjoy it. And both of us sat down and watched it. And then immediately both of us sat down and watched the sequel. And it, it really it really plays well. Like if you just like time travel movies, I think these are essential to check out just to have something slick and fun. That'll kind of take your mind off uh, the travails of the current uh, climate right now. So my first movie, I think is also part of your Hooptober list uh, is uh, the movie little monsters uh, starring Lupita Nyong'o. I would call it just a straight, uh, like a, it, it is a comedy movie, but it like you're like a Shaun of the dead. It doesn't skimp on the zombie violence that sort of forms the pretext for it. Um, and so this is definitely as, as fun and lighthearted a movie as this is, this is definitely not a anywhere close to being a family film, um, which I think is actually part of what I like about it. Um, the, the premise is that uh, Lupita is a uh, kindergarten teacher. Is, is she kindergarten or just kindergarten? Just rent. So she's a kindergarten teacher taking her uh, taking her students on a field trip uh, to a petting zoo and needs a and, and needs a parent volunteer uh, to sort of uh, help chaperone the kids. And the person who gets selected is the uncle of one of the kids who is a complete shitbag. While they are there, a zombie outbreak happens nearby. And so Lupita's job in this movie is to not only uh save the kids lives but also to try and do it in a way that keeps them from being traumatized and keep them sort of not aware of what's going on to try and hide the fact that they're on the run from zombies um lupita is just fantastic she's amazing in this movie she is i i i, I know we, we we talked about this earlier um and i think you like the movie a little bit more than i do but I mean, 99.9% of the reason why I like this movie at all is because of how wonderful Lupita Nyong'o is in it. <laughs> 
A- absolutely. And I think uh and, and I think the kids are actually pretty great too. They're fantastic, um, yeah. I, I do think that uh some of the adult male characters, I think you had mentioned this, are not worthy of Lupita. Uh as are none of us, to be fair, but to like fair. they especially seem to not be worthy of the movie that they are in uh, and the person that they are standing next to, which I think you potentially took some uh, took some issue with. But I, I think it's a I think it's a fun movie. Um, it is very sweet, despite all the zombie gore that uh, is there. And uh, yeah, it's just delightful. Um, l- going to something that's a bit more conventionally horror, I, I finally. I finally got off my ass and saw Color Out of Space, uh, starring Nicolas Cage. It's a adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's story. I do. I don't have a lot to say on this one. I liked it. I thought it was well done. I do think that there are moments in Nick Cage's descent into madness where I think he slips into in. in because, of course, you know, with Nick Cage, the whole thing is that he's capable of doing amazing things and a wide range of things. But there's also like there's good Nick Cage and there's bad Nick Cage. And I feel like there's moments where he slips just a little bit um, that kind of like hit me in in it take me out a little bit. But I do. Li- but when but at the beginning and especially at the end, when everything sort of full tilt uh, into sort of the insanity of everything, I. I thought it was really well done. And I especially liked the, um, without spoilers, there's a monstrous, a particular monstrous effect uh, that of, uh, of the family that uh, is just absolutely f- uh, terrifying that I yeah. thought was really good. Uh, I am 100% with you, probably on everything you, you said. Um, I really like Nicolas Cage in about 90% of this movie. <laughs> And there's 10% where I'm like, oh, it's a little groany. It's a little cringeworthy. Uh, but so much of this movie works for me. Um, we're not going to do this in every episode. At least I'm not going to do this uh, in every episode. I'm not going to kind of double apologize for for stuff. But uh, while fully acknowledging what a shitbag HP Lovecraft is as it was as a human being, it doesn't stop me from absolutely loving his style of horror that's a this lovecraftian horror this 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 concept of outer gods and elder gods and things of indefinable shape and madness um that has shaped my entire love of horror um and one of my biggest regrets time and time again is how few movies are able to convey lovecraftian horror effectively um I don't know that I can pinpoint on my hand, on one hand, the number of films I think do it really well. I think this film does it really, really well. That monstrous thing that you're referring to, man, that is crazy. Um, but just everything else about this movie, the sly nods to other Lovecraft stories, the character names and things like that, just the performance, the way that it's filmed. Um, it's fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And I'm super stoked to hear that if we ever get out of this pandemic, that uh, his next film is going to be another adaptation of Lovecraft. I think he's going to be doing the Dunwich Horror next. Uh, so super psyched. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the movie as well. Absolutely. Well, I think that's probably going to wrap it up uh, for us tonight. Uh, 
definitely want to make sure that you check out the new cinemaduel.com website for sure to catch up on episodes and writings that we do. I also want to make special mention just because of the time and place to go to ninecircles.co uh, to check out uh, Chris's Hooptober writings. Uh, he's written a whole bunch of stuff from this year and past years as well. Um, so you can catch up on his Hooptober stuff there. And he also do- has started doing a uh, uh, part of the Nine Circles uh, audio podcast feed where they started doing a series called Blood Red. It's similarly talking about uh, horror movies as well in more uh, more frequently than you're probably going to hear here. So if that's uh, if this if you've liked sort of the horrorness of this stuff, then definitely go to Nine Circles to uh, uh, to get more of that good stuff. But yeah, I think that'll be it. And uh, it's always fun. And uh, even <laughs> even when it's the witch that came from the sea. Uh, uh, it's always fun, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you next time. Yeah, I look forward to talking about something else other than horror, so I can't wait for our next episode, John. I do believe that the text message you sent me before we started recording is, I'm pretty much done with horror movies. So uh, <laughs> that, 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 is a, that is a good place for us to sort of transition out of this, and uh, uh, unless we go completely insane, uh, likely pick something a bit more bright and uplifting next time. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.